and the render distance starts here. Good morning, Joel. Good morning, Johnny. And to all of our Canadian and U.S. members and listeners out there, happy Canada Day, belated. That was July 1st. And happy 4th of July. That's today. It is the 4th of July. It's very, very strange. I mean, for a start that it's the 4th of July already. Gosh, where's the year gone? But um, as a special present to everybody, not just because it's a national holiday in North America, but also because it is our 200th episode. Not our 200th episode of The Render Distance, but the 200th episode of The Spawn Chunks, at least. We are releasing the full-length episode of the show that normally gets posted to our patreon feed which includes a little pre-show and post-show chat from me and joel i'll i'll kind of you know say that mainly in the in the main show just in case anybody else ends up skipping ahead but uh yeah we uh we decided that i think we did this for episode 100 as well and it seemed like a cool thing to loop everybody into the uh the, the kind of pre and post show chats that joel and i have give you a little behind the scenes about what it's like to be a patron of the show and probably make everybody hungry because most of what we do in these is discuss food and today is no exception i made an absolutely dynamite sauce for some linguine and meatballs this week and i just wanted to share Ooh. that with you because you are please a food, do a food driven human as as anybody uh anybody knows who follows you on instagram um i don't normally like the the sauce for meatballs or spaghetti bolognese or whatever it is for me i usually end up buying it in a jar in the supermarket because it's been pre-made for me they've done all the funky stuff they need to do with the tomatoes and my previous attempts at making a sauce like that from scratch have always ended up too watery or not flavorful enough. So this time around, I came back with all of the stuff for the meatballs. I came back with the linguine. And the meatballs were something that I was already cutting corners with because I buy um, like I, I buy sausages and then I take them out of their casings and I wrap them into meatballs because they're already pre-seasoned. I prefer pork meatballs over beef sometimes, so that's typically what I tend to do. But I realized that I hadn't brought home a jar of sauce. What I did have was some pretty nice tomatoes and a couple of leftover like halves of bell peppers that I you know, chopped up for stir fry earlier in the week. And so I roasted all of those with a bit of olive oil, a little bit of salt and some seasoning. And then I blended all of that up and the sauce was immediately like way thicker than any of my previous attempts had been in the past. Because obviously roasting it is going to like evaporate some of the, the water, the moisture goes away. You are left with all of the stuff that helps make the sauce nice and thick and then you can reduce that in the pan afterwards. So I made, yeah, basically meatball sauce from scratch and then obviously cooked the spaghetti and the meatballs and threw the whole thing together. It was glorious i think one of my one of my favorite improvised things lately that's just turned out like oh restaurant quality you know dude that's fantastic uh and i see stuff like that all the time on on tiktok i use tiktok a lot for getting recipes and getting food ideas i don't tend to write the recipes down i more just see something see a technique and then just kind of like file that away in my brain like the next time i make spaghetti sauce or the next time i do something i'm gonna try this and uh, it usually makes a world of difference. Turns out when chefs do TikToks, they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. awesome. And I, I saw that story and I, I was following the, the, the making of it. Look, it looked fantastic. 
it yeah. really looked fa- looked fantastic. Yeah, it turned um, out pretty great. I've I've been following. Uh, speaking of TikTok stuff, I haven't really been following them on TikTok, but Mythical Kitchen, the um, sort of oh, cooking yes. arm of Rhett and Link's production company, have some fantastic videos. A lot of which are just the kind of the clickbaity, like let's make this fast food dish even more absurd, and it costs four hundred dollars. But um, I love those shows just because of the the spectacle of it and the fact that the the people involved know what they're talking about and are very very funny. But sometimes they do stuff which is just like down to earth cooking tips and that's where i ended up like deciding i wanted to roast garlic more because they did a like a a burger setup that was just like at first make garlic mayo roast the garlic it turns out all jammy you can squeeze it out of the bulb and um you know mix that with some mayonnaise and it's really great and so i've been doing stuff like that and that's kind of emboldened me to improvise more of that stuff that I'm not, like, the worst cook in the world, but I also like to cut corners, especially when I don't have too much time. I'm like, I'll buy ingredients off the shelf and just throw them together in a pan, and that'll do. Uh, But yeah, really happy that I I had a bit of extra time, the tennis was on in the background, and I was just like, sure, let me me make a a custom-made thing for once, and it turned out really well. I I took inspiration from your your post, and uh, not surprising, as a food-driven human... I actually roasted peppers last night. Nice. I did, I did it on the barbecue though. Oh. Uh, so I, I had a I was I went to the gym last night and on the way like before I left for the gym, I realized I hadn't taken anything out of the freezer. So I had no like I've got cooked and raw things in the freezer for like that have been barbecued and that need to be barbecued. Nothing was thawed when I finished my stream at 4:30. I was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. that was a mistake." And I thought, well, I was going to go for a run, but now I'll go to the gym. The gym happens to be next door to the grocery store. So um, the grocery store being open when I was finished the gym, I picked up some stuff on the way home. And I thought, well, whatever. I'll go in. I'll get whatever's around. Uh, and I'll just pick up something to barbecue. I don't. I had not decided what I was going to do. And uh, uh, having roasted peppers on the brain from seeing your post Mm -hmm. uh i picked up we we get them in specials there's like a sleeve of a yellow and orange and a red pepper Mm -hmm. uh, and it was like four bucks for all three of them uh and then i picked up a t-bone steak well two t-bone steaks but i cooked one last night but i roasted my bell peppers on the barbecue and i could have left them out there longer they were taking longer to cook than i anticipated to get like some decent char on them i got some good grill lines and stuff and they they were cooked like they were very tasty but i would have liked a little bit more of a of a char to them um that's just me not realizing how long they were going to take and the steak had already been cooked and was resting and i didn't want it to get cold so i did kind of rush through the peppers but inspired to try that again with a lot more time uh and probably some more coals i think the peppers would actually go really good with ribs i think roasted peppers would have a great great kind of pairing with with ribs Mm -hmm. uh and i'd be able to have the peppers out there for longer maybe in a pan or something like that but i made like a whole board i had like a a a t-bone steak i had a baguette i had some old cheddar around i roasted up the peppers that was dinner that was the whole nice that was the whole thing yeah i was very full afterwards it's um it's hard to tell from (laughs) from the instagram image but it's a really big cutting board Uh uh-huh yes full of food (laughs) and i I basically just sat there and ate the whole thing it looks like it's taking up most of the table and i'm like yep that's that's a, a hearty dinner for you that's that's awesome yeah it's 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 well, so nice when you get to do stuff like that you kind of treat yourself with with stuff oh like for that. sure yeah it's, yeah it's you, you have a kind of charcuterie board experience just to yourself 
Yeah, I mean, and it's fairly healthy. I mean, like, there's a lot of bread there, and and the steak was pretty lean. I, I you know, it wasn't the best cut of meat. Like, I could it could have been a little bit better, mm-hmm. um, but that's what you get when you're getting two T-bone steaks for like 15 bucks at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they weren't super thick, so I found it challenging because I, I one thing I have not done on the barbecue much is steak, and I'm always torn between like do i do direct grilling do i do indirect do i do pre-sear post-sear like i can never decide so i thought well the only way to decide this is to just start buying slightly cheaper cuts of meat and seeing which method works the best and is the easiest to manage and then spend the money on a nice cut and then do it the way that that you want um and uh and so i've got this other t-bone which i'm probably going to cook tonight actually uh and i'll i'm going to try a direct method rather than last night was was indirect and i think because of that i ended up overcooking it just a little bit mm-hmm. um but this should be should be better um and that was i mean it was still a fairly healthy dinner i had a big workout so i really wasn't too worried about it yeah uh, sure on the flip side though on canada day you have to barbecue like that's that's the deal yeah <laughs> and i um i i had some leftover stuff i had some uh, ground beef uh, patties that I had made up in the freezer. So I had I taken them out the day before, and I made I made hamburgers. And I like I had gone to the grocery store. I bought like a bag of potato chips or crisps for you people in the UK that, that don't know what I'm talking <laughs> yes. about. Uh, Sorry so, like, about our terminology. It happens. Yeah, the only vegetables in sight were the homegrown basil leaves on the on the burgers. Mm. There was no veggies. It was just potato chips and burgers, and uh, and they were smoked hamburgers. And that's a smoked porter that I had with it as well. And like, it was, it can, I was supposed to go on a hike on Canada today and a friend ended up, ended up canceling at the last minute and it's no one's fault. Just, you know, crap happens and you have to just kind of like pivot. So I ended up going to the gym again uh, on Canada day and just get, at least getting outside. But I knew that barbecuing was, was going to happen. It's kind of a tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and man, like I, I'm feeling it. <laughs> yeah (laughs) like i I ate a lot i i don't necessarily think i ate poorly like i had a good dinner saturday i had a nice dinner on on sunday there with the steak board so it wasn't like i ate junk all weekend but i ate a lot and you pair that with a pancake breakfast on saturday and like i just i ate a lot of food this week and i feel like i gained five pounds (laughs) i was gonna say welcome to the food coma portion of the podcast that's really what this is Oh my days! Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've I've been eating pretty well lately as well. We've decided to try and branch out from our usual takeout places and try and get something different whenever we order food. And there's a place in town that is actually like on a a delivery route that does really good sushi that we haven't actually been to before, but we were able to to order out. And it's expensive to get sushi delivered to you, but um it's better than buying stuff from the supermarket or whatever. And this stuff was like really well made. It was really nice. Uh, some good kimchi and stuff as well. Like, it's a primarily Japanese place, but they have a couple of other, like, Asian cuisine. They borrowed bits and pieces from Korea and a few other places. So, yeah, we had a really, really nice meal there as well. And I made burgers last night. And so, hey, it's that, nice. that summer menu has happened where it's like, some days you just want something, like, big and chunky and, like, you, we've been eating more salad, we've been eating more sushi. It's just kind of nice to, uh, to branch out a little bit from the winter warmers we've been having for the, the first half of the year. And that's where I get into um, a lot of barbecuing is because turning the oven on in my place, even to make pizza, which I love pizza, but like it just gets so hot in the summertime to have the oven on because I mean, pizza, you got to roast it. So your oven is up to like 400 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And 
And when your apartment is already 28, you're just like, and like, and my living room and kitchen are virtually the same room. So like turning the oven on, it's like turning on a heater in July. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, I still haven't figured out how to uh, cook pizza on the barbecue. I, I don't, I'd have to do mini pizzas because the, even moving all the charcoal over to one side, I still don't think I have enough room for a full size pizza without burning a side of it. Yeah, because sure. it would be it would be direct as opposed to indirect. It would work the same as a as a regular pizza oven, but like oh man, the the dream is to have an outside stone pizza oven someday oh, yeah. on a backyard <laughs> that I don't own yet. But um, I do you I forget. Do you have a grill? Do you do outside barbecue or did you do your hamburgers inside? Uh, I did a hamburgers inside. They, they were just like oven cooked ones. Um, and oh, okay. that and that's fine by me. Like I'm not super picky. They're also veggie burgers, so they weren't necessarily like you know, the the full on kind of prime steak version but um yeah i i just i i like doing a a bit of variety but we don't have a grill here and i really want to redo our outside like patio area and stuff because there's not really a great deal of room to do that out there right now without it just taking up space the rest of the time you know so Mm -hmm. I, i would love to get a deck built in our back garden and have the grill out there if i have one or something like that and that's something that I'm probably going to wait to do a little bit more of once we have a car and we can, you know, travel around and buy bits and pieces of patio furniture without having to have it all ordered to the house, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's my plan. That's, uh, yeah, hopefully going to happen sometime towards the end of summer when it's still going to be decent enough weather that doing stuff outside actually makes any sense whatsoever. And, you know, word to the wise, like when you do that kind of stuff at the end of the summer, uh, things like patio furniture barbecues any kind of like peripheral kind of stuff you might need at the end of summer usually goes on sale mm-hmm. at least around here you yeah. know like around labor day uh like i remember my patio set i it took me forever to find a little bistro set because they're usually expensive because of how like you know quirky they are um and i ended up getting a really nice set from walmart of all places all metal and paid half of what i normally would have paid because i bought it in like september as opposed to buying it you know earlier in the season um but yeah that's if um if you ever if you do end up getting a grill for outside you can get like little charcoal grills too that would be something that you could easily like take down and put in a shed for the winter like for the uk you know not going to barbecue until next may sort of deal um there's lots of options rather than getting like a big propane setup that you don't you don't necessarily need if you don't grill all that much yeah for sure yeah no that's that's probably the plan i mean we just uh i've just been rearranging my garden storage so that we have a like a, a shredder basically that can shred mulch all of the cuttings from the garden like the hedge clippings and bits of the trees that overhang the end of the garden and stuff and i've just thrown that into the storage set up next to our lawnmower which is now a smaller model and can fit both of these things in there at once and so yeah i've been doing a bit of rearranging but i'm like i don't know where i put a grill at this point like it'd have to go in the conservatory and that's where i was trying to make space in the first place by moving the shredder out there so yeah who knows will it'll happen eventually sooner or later i'll i'll become the, the I'll, I'll you'll get updates about grilling from me the same as you do from joel and then it's all over for you folks we're starting a, a completely different <laughs> podcast that's just going to be like two dudes grilling opposite sides of the atlantic yeah i don't listen to any cooking podcasts i think mostly because i want to see what's going on like i think i'd rather watch a cooking youtube channel or TikToks oh, yeah. and stuff rather than rather than listening to a cooking show although i'm sure that there are probably some cooking nerds out there that really like a cooking show oh you know, yeah that like you know and it, it's probably more about like stories of things gone wrong or things going well as opposed to recipes or anything like that because i feel like any kind of recipe or technique there's usually a visual description that needs to go with it you know yeah 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 i, I feel like a lot of the food podcasts out there tend to be more kind of 
debate kind of stuff like um going mm. back to what i was saying about mythical kitchen their podcast uh, is called a hot dog is a sandwich and it's basically all stuff like that it's like them debating kind of food things like is soup technically cereal or is cereal technically soup or whichever way around it is you know that <laughs> that kind of thing right um nice. so they, they have a bunch of like food opinions and stuff like that but it gets really into the history of some of that stuff and it's fascinating from like a, a food history perspective more so than it is like learning to cook something and so there's a bunch of different angles that you can approach a topic like that it's just not necessarily going to be food advice all of the time you know mm-hmm. no that makes that makes a lot of sense i uh one of the things that i i enjoy uh uh Suser lee is uh one of the canadian iron chef uh i think he won one of the uh, one of the shows but his son jet bentley uh has a youtube channel where he goes and buys fast food and then brings it home and gets his dad to turn it into gourmet mm-hmm. and he films the whole thing and he what's really funny about it too is that he teases his dad too because english is a second language for his dad he's very fluent but like every once in a while like phrases or or certain kind of like slang he'll get wrong and then jet will kind of jab him about it uh-huh, which is uh-huh. kind of funny um but it's really cool that he turns something he'll take taco bell and turn it into gourmet or he'll take like in and out burger and turn it into like a gourmet presentation nice and all the while though you'll pick up a couple things it's like oh he's doing something specific with these onions he's gonna make like you know um candied onions to top this burger which you never would have thought of but like he just because of his skill level he just knows how to do in a heartbeat right mm-hmm. yeah um, the thing the thing that i have trouble with watching any kind of professional chefs do their thing is that they never measure anything <laughs> yeah so you're sitting there trying to watch and take notes she was like i don't know how much salt that was he kind of <laughs> threw it at the pan like i don't yeah, yeah, know yeah. Like, you know and i mean it works but they, they're just so used to like you know this pinch is so many teaspoons or like whatever right yeah oh man it's just i i did that with some of my barbecue rubs i was watching aaron franklin do a video i'm just like he's not even measuring he's just kind of like dumping salt and paprika and garlic into a container and shaking it around so i'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking at it like he looks to be about my height that looks like it might be a quarter cup you know <laughs> like i'm just guessing at proportions yeah they they say that food is an art uh, like cooking is an art and baking is a science and baking is really right. the one that you need to like pay attention to right mm-hmm. yeah i'm not that great at baking i can make banana muffins cookies and banana bread that's about it yeah I, again i can follow a recipe but i'm nowhere near the improviser with like baked stuff than i am like no. cooking the no. the dinner for the night yeah, you know, I don't bake a, a lot or I need to bake less because there is only one person that lives here and only one person that eats it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like when you realize I've made a loaf of banana bread. And as you finish, it, you're like, I ate that entire loaf <laughs> of banana bread. Like yeah. it might take me a few days, but still like the thought of like, I know how much butter and sugar I put in this thing. <laughs> yeah, I have just consumed all of it. Mm-hmm. It's not great. Well, not uh, great. time to burn off some of those calories by doing a show about Minecraft. Yes, that sounds like a plan. Uh, I'm just going to double check. I believe it's episode 200. Is that correct, John? Uh, I, I believe. Yeah, let me. What what day is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. What, what year is it? Nope. Yeah, episode 200. It's on counting the fingers and toes. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Okay. Cool. All right. Starting the show in three, two. Welcome to the Spawn Chunks, episode number 200 for Monday, July 4th, 2022. My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is Johnny, who you may know better as Pixel Riffs or Roasted Red Bell Pepper Pixel Riffs. 
<laughs> I have my moments. Yes. Uh, imaginary air horns going off. <laughs> 200 episodes. Thank you so much for listening, folks. We could not have reached episode 200 without the support of our patrons. And we'd like to thank our patrons on the first episode of every month anyway. Uh, but since this feels like such a big milestone from the show, we want to say a huge thank you to everyone in our community who pitches in to make this show possible. If you're interested in joining them and pushing us towards future milestones, you can find us and support us at patreon.com slash the spawn chunks but to give you a taste no pun intended of the extended version of the show we've released the whole thing today including the pre and post show chats that we call the render distance which are normally patrons only to the main feed and the youtube channel so anybody who is listening to this in whatever place you find the spawn chunks is getting a little extra which is yes of course how uh, joel gives me a nickname every week or vice versa because usually we pull that from our discussion in the render distance uh, so now we've made you all hungry with that chat uh Today's episode of the podcast is going to be a chunk mail dispenser. We wanted to focus on celebrating the community. We also have a guest coming in for episode 201, where James LRR, or James Turner from Loading Ready Run, is going to be joining us. Uh, he's a somewhat eccentric Minecraft streamer. He self-described as eccentric because his specialty is just in digging out entire chunks of the world to bedrock. That is just all he does in Minecraft, pretty much. But he's got a very unique perspective on the game, and we're going to be excited to talk to him next week. In the meantime, we have a couple of upcoming patron events. Our quarterly hangout is probably going to be happening next Saturday on July 9th. And of course, we'll have a monthly Minecraft hangout towards the end of the month. We're not sure if the 23rd or the 30th is going to work out yet, but it's usually on the last Saturday of each month. So we'll see what our availability is and keep an eye on the Discord announcements channel for that. I also want to give a big shout out from Johnny and I to our Discord community moderators, Cosmic, Cosmic Dancer in a lot of places, Hunter Triple Five, and Jumbo Sale. Uh, thank you so much for all the welcoming messages, uh, the moderation of the community, and and the help that you give us to help uh, just moderate this growing uh, Discord chat. As more people join, it's amazing, but it also becomes a lot to manage. And uh, Johnny and I could not manage without Cosmic Hunter and Jumble Sale. Really, truly appreciate it. Also want to give a big tip of the hat to the Spawn Chunks Rainbow Email Sheep of Doom. <laughs> you know who you are. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, I would not be able to parse through the messages uh, that we get without first the email sheep <laughs> filing them accordingly for me because it's a lot and it's amazing we get so much mess so much email but it's a it's a lot to get through yes uh but before we get into some of that email and of course the news we're gonna just chat about what's new in our minecraft life as we often do and uh yeah why don't you go first what's new on the citadel so this weekend was kind of a mix of things. Uh, taking some advice from you, I believe either in last week's Render Distance or maybe even in the main show, I took Saturday and just did a resource gathering stream. Three mm -hmm. hours of just uh, going to the new mangrove swamp on the server that we found a couple weeks ago. And uh, even though I had propagules, I could have grown my own trees right there in Westall. I thought I need mud and I need you know, mangrove leaves and all this stuff. I'm just going to go and, and collect a bunch of stuff. I don't like chopping down mangrove trees. <laughs> like, I don't like it a lot, Johnny. It It's it's so much effort for, even though you still can get like a fair amount of logs from one tree, the trees are so big and there's so many leaves. Uh, I mean, first of all, anybody that tries to do it by hand, have a composter ready because you're just you're going to get a lot of bone meal if you don't. Once you get a shulker box full of leaves, which you can get from one tree almost, mm -hmm. 
maybe two, then you can turn the rest into bone meal, but there's really no other use for them. So I found it really tedious, not to mention that the lovely diagonal connections of the wood blocks and the density of the mangrove leaf block means that it's very hard to see where you've left a little floating block uh, in, in the tree. And because of their size, like I, I really did not enjoy it. I, I came home after the full stint mining in the area with a stack and a half of mangrove logs. I had three plus stacks of mangrove roots. I had a shulker box full of leaves, which I got in the first 15 minutes I was there. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with a stack and change for propagules. So I'm good as far as I don't ever have to go back to the mangrove swamp. I can just grow them on my own. But I, I think that the mangrove tree might push me to, to have the first automatic tree farm on the server for nothing else other than just maybe squishing the leaves. Like once I have enough <laughs> leaves, I I don't need to collect them. I just need to remove them so I can see the wood and collect it. I don't necessarily want to have like a TNT powered tree farm, but I just want to be able to get to the mangrove wood sooner. Because honestly, I think that might affect how much I use mangrove wood. Yeah. You know, I don't, it's not like it's spruce or dark oak where, you know, like I'm just, I really, really like the texture. It's good enough. It's cool. It's different. I like the trapdoors and it's going to have some fun uses, but I, I don't think that I'm propelled to get a lot of it when I look at how hard it is to mine it, you know, and, and harvest it on my own. So mm -hmm. um, I did that. And then I went and got some mud, which again, that didn't take very long. Tip of the hat to Mojang for making mud like three to four blocks deep in the mangrove yeah, swamp. It's so good, but without having the density of like dirt or, mm -hmm. or, or sand in a desert or something like that, it's so nice. Instead of it being, it could have been the way it works in mesas where red sand is just like the top layer of the surface and then that's it. But no, having having a decent amount of mud to dig into, it just multiplies the amount you can get from it. 100%. Yeah. And and also, even though we have a really large mangrove swamp biome, uh, I'm harvesting kind of like from the farthest tip, uh, the northern tip back down. And it's nice to not have to destroy like acres of the place to get mud, right? Because I brought back a full shulker box full of full of mud. And I managed to get a, a couple stacks of muddy mangrove roots as well. I don't imagine I'm going to need much more than a stack or two just to have like for textures and things like that. It'll probably last me a, a decent amount of time. Uh, and one thing I noticed on my way back, because I had to stop, pivot, and pick up some wheat from Dartmouth Meadows on the way back to, to uh, West Hill was because I keep on thinking that you have to smelt mud to make packed <laughs> right. mud yeah, yeah and it's yeah. not it's wheat right so like uh, a personal wheat farm that pumps out a little bit more than what we have in the community farm is uh, is on the list too so i'm starting to as 119 has kind of been percolating in my gameplay now for a couple weeks or almost a month i guess uh i'm starting to realize where the server and where i personally are coming up short with automated support for the supplies i need so like i need more wheat you know like i I don't think I need more mangrove leaves. So, you know, that's not a big deal, but the mud supply and I can see myself wanting maybe like an automatic mud farm or like something along those lines. So, so we'll have to see what kind of technical ideas I come up with in, in the future. Uh, and I did start to collect more copper because that's also something I'm going to be using uh, a lot more of in the new Western area of the town. But I I didn't really find a lot because I wasn't specifically looking for it. I I wanna I wanna know if you feel that a copper vein versus me going to my drown farm 
and, and the copper drown farm that I set up, uh, even though there would probably be some like AFK clicking involved, like, do you, what do you think would be a more fruitful endeavor? Do you think that there's probably going to be more coming my way? Because I, I have fortune and all that kind of stuff on my picks with, with a copper vein. Remind me what kind of drown farm you have. Is it the one, like the Tango Tech one, where you spam them with snowballs and they produce more and more and more drowned? Yes, yeah, the yeah. Uh, um, Nembon uh, design. Yeah. yeah. powered. It's powered by a spawner, so you can always turn it on with a spawner. And the spawner constantly adds, like, you know, two or three. But it's it's the chain of reinforcement zombies that's the yes. real meat of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. So I think that would probably serve you better long term. But if it's if you want to get copper quickly, I think the copper vein is going to be faster. It's not necessarily going to be better in the long run because obviously it will deplete after a while, and you'll have to go back to the drowned farm anyway. But I do think getting a copper vein is quicker. That's the one conclusive thing that I drew from racing a single cell iron farm against mining out a huge vein of iron is that right. if you want to get a lot of material very quickly mining for it that way because it's guaranteed to be basically around every corner you're going to get a lot of it rather than having to spend a bunch of time obviously the flip side of that is that if you can just run this thing while you're afk then it's going to make more material than you know what to do with <laughs> but uh that's not really an option with the with the copper veins so yeah i i think it's it's really down to whether you want it quickly or whether you want it long term and renewably and i think too part of it is remembering to even turn on the afk farm you know like i like yeah. during my work day i have to remember to turn on the gaming pc go to there you know go to the farm and set up like a macro where i'm i'm swiping my sword every you know so often that kind of thing and uh i i tried it once I think it was manual. Like I didn't have an AFK clicker. I just like every five minutes I would turn around and just swipe at it yeah. for like an hour or two. I don't remember it being so efficient that it was blowing me away. Yeah. So I may I may have to look. I, I have to look and find a, a copper vein or two because as far as I know, like they they don't um, they don't generate under Y zero, right? They're kind of like a stone level, not yes. a deep slate level. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I'd have to go to new chunks then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems likely. Mm. And and the, the deep yeah. slate ones are all the iron veins from Y0 and below. So, right, yeah. okay. Yeah, that's the, right. the way around it works. I really want to find an iron vein somewhere on uh, Empires right now, actually, because, man, I'm, I'm hurting for iron. It's not that it's not everywhere, but I really want to start working with, like, hoppers and other redstone components and stuff pretty yeah. quickly. I have a beacon now, so I really want to get hold of enough beacon blocks for the full tier 4 base and... Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I think a lot of the area underneath me is deep dark. So even if I want to go looking for that stuff, I have to be extra careful. And half of the blocks have been covered over by skulk anyway, so it's a little tricky. Well, speaking of all these new blocks, I I tried to use some of them in uh, one of the next builds that we completed in Westhill, which is nothing terribly fancy. It's just a, a couple of um, I call them like not industrial buildings, but they're like. Um, I can't remember the term, but it just, it's like a just a, a throughway. It's not meant to be a house. It's not really meant to be anything, maybe then a little bit of storage and just a way to walk from one area of the build to the other. Just mm -hmm. a functional kind of like covered pathway. Uh, and it, I just it provides a it's more about having a little footbridge over an alley, you know, was the, really the whole purpose behind these two buildings. And I tried to use mud bricks. I tried to use packed mud. I tried to use uh, mangrove. Like I tried all kinds of different stuff to try and 
make it feel like, oh, I should build this with the new blocks. And ultimately got really frustrated and realized that there's a lot of blocks now in Minecraft, even with the addition of the new ones, at least specifically for my kind of medieval style in West Hill, that are either all very similar to stone in their tone, that kind of medium gray, uh, or if they are a different color, like a different hue with like the mud bricks. Because I was swapping out like mud bricks, packed mud. I had uh, jungle wood. I had uh, what we ended up using was was mushroom blocks. Mm -hmm. But they're all the same color brown, right? They've got different textures, but they're all the same same tone. None of them are lighter or darker than the other. So it became very difficult with the dark oak roof to try and create something that had some contrast Yeah, that didn't just look like more of the same. So as I was trying to build the bottom of this, this building, I was just like, I don't want to use andesite and stone because like I've used that everywhere in this place. And I'm trying to branch out and challenge myself a bit. I ultimately ended up using andesite, but I lined the base of it with some, some furnaces and I had some, uh, my note block has a specific crate texture on it, but note blocks and, and dark oak for like the corner um, supports and things. But it was a really frustrating experience. Like it was just one of those builds where, and I want to, I'm curious as you know, whether you've had this experience recently or, or something that you can articulate is that I just had to walk away. I had to be like, this is not an important build. People are going to walk by it in terms of like any of my friends visiting this, this site are going to walk by it quite quickly. I'm spending the entire stream trying to get this right. And it's just a warehouse. Like it's not mm -hmm. even a cool thing. It's not a candle shop. It's not a flower shop. It's not, you know, the magistrate's office. It's, ju it's just a, it's just a building that connects to the one next to it. Um, but the challenge within it was because of the connection and me wanting it to be the same sort of design, it's next to two different builds, you know, and in two different areas, like it's on the top of the hill on one end and it's in the middle of an alley on the other. So trying to get it to match look like it was designed by, you know, the same person, but then, you know, also not clash with the buildings next to it was challenging. All of these things I realize are things that I've, I've done to myself. It's a corner that I've painted myself into. Um, but that's kind of one of the fun things about the creativity of, of Minecraft. Uh, I think it's successful. It still needs some texture on the roof, like that the roof isn't completely finished and the inside hasn't been decorated, but I'm happy with it. It's got like a functional through fare. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like a utility building. And, and I find myself on builds that are not that important, still trying to put in that effort. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, then yeah, I get yeah. frustrated. Like I'm trying to make this look amazing. And I was like, it's not an amazing idea to begin with, Joel. Maybe don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> so have you had that experience where like, you're trying to build up something, you're decorating something and it's just, it's just not working out. And you realize I am losing my mind over like this four by five sheep farm that I, j I just shouldn't care this much about. Have you had that happen? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like that's, that's playing Minecraft for me. A lot of the time is, is just <laughs> trying to figure out when to cut your losses and move on is one of the biggest kind of most important skills, especially when you're making regular YouTube or Twitch content, right? It's that, you, you know, you know that your audience is going to be like rolling their eyes going, oh, we're back to this again. Like, should I use this block? Should I use that block? And, you know, there's definitely a lot of people who just want you to pick one and move on, you know? Um, yeah. So, so yeah, like I, I've definitely been in that position before. I spend way too much time on that stuff. And it's not even just in vanilla Minecraft. Like I think about the amount of time in the past that I have dedicated to 
trying to do stuff with like chisels and bits or with the posable armor stands data pack or something like that and it's such minute detail that i just think you know unless somebody goes and stares at this for at least five minutes of a day it's not going to be worthwhile right it's not going to be kind of worth spending that amount of time on it the time in versus reward out is actually going to be very little and it's at that point you have to realize sure let me go on to something that makes me happy to do and that it has a, a greater chance of success and sometimes maybe that idea clicks and you come back to it later and you realize that's what i've been missing the entire time somebody in twitch chat will mention it maybe and then you'll go oh okay that's a perfect block why didn't i think of that at the time so yeah there's there's yeah. always the opportunity to return to it later is how i think about it so that's basically how i wrapped up my weekend was just kind of like beating my head against uh against this build and uh ultimately i think you're right like i i i will come back to it at some point you mm -hmm. know i just need to kind of move on to other things and i find too that a, a, a lot of what i've been doing in Westdale because i don't build anything in creative first i'm like experimenting live on the stream i find that i'll come up with something like, oh like that combination of stair fence gate and you know, little peak of roof over a door really looks like an arch. Like that's a really interesting way to get a cool shape in Minecraft. Only to realize it doesn't work right here because I need to put a lan lantern there. Mm -hmm. But it's just like mentally be like, okay, I have to remember this trick because it doesn't work for this build, but it's a cool trick. I just have to remember to use it in other places. So I'm trying to kind of build up that that re repertoire, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's um, it's hard to keep it all straight. I, I do find as much as we all, you know, chime in about wanting more blocks or more versions of blocks in the game uh i find it's hard to keep it all straight like yeah. <laughs> i end up going now to the crafting table and typing in wall and just like reminding myself what color walls do i have access mm -hmm. to now like oh right there's deep slate walls they didn't work but i tried them and it just because i didn't remember i had access to them yeah so yeah. there is that but anyway that's that's me what what have you been up to this past week uh, so on Survival Guide, I introduced the last frog variant into my frog light farm. Uh, it's a magma cube spawner-based one in the nether. I fixed up the collection mechanism for that as well because it was returning to a row of hoppers and then immediately going away again. And that thing produced enough frog lights that eventually the hopper minecart was just filling up without being able to unload. So I put in a pretty simple hopper minecart unloader and that's working splendidly now. I have enough frog lights to fill up my storage system back at spawn which i'm pretty happy with um and so yeah I, I ended up coming back to spawn after having done that and like you i could have stuck around and put another uh, you know 10 plus hours into redecorating parts of that bastion which is something that i really want to do because i want to make it more than just like an area that's just functional I, I feel like there's a lot you can do with those those bastion remnants especially the big ones but I was also thinking, well, I've got an ancient city renovation project on the go right now, and I need to do stuff back at spawn, and I have my dripstone cave base. I don't want to just start something new and then spend a few minutes on it and then get worried that I'm not, I'm neglecting my other projects. So what I did was I went back to spawn and I thought my storage building where I'm putting all of this stuff hasn't really had a proper path built up to it because it's up a hill and I built it kind of jutting out from the hill to the point where the entrance is basically you just jump out over a couple of blocks and then you run on down the hill to where the starter house is and that's typically where I do a lot of my recording stuff at least to begin with and I decided I need to do some terraforming I need to actually structure this area into something that's got a winding path that feels a bit more natural for a hill that's this steep 
And so I built a path up to it and did an episode all about terraforming, which I thought came together really well. Uh, it's a mixture of path stuff and terraforming hillsides, a few shortcuts and a few more considered approaches to it. Like I didn't, ended up spamming a lot of moss up the side of this hill just so that there was something to change out the dirt blocks with the side texture of uh, grass blocks into something that looked like a rolling green hill where the grass covers the side face of the block as well as the, uh, you know, the, the top face. And so I was uh, spending a bit of time doing that, making a couple of, like, rough rock walls that just kind of felt like they partitioned the area off and made it less obvious that there was a path up to the storage building that way. You kind of are diverted to the left and you go around the walking path instead of hopping up this hill block by block. You know, it feels a little bit more smooth that way. Now that there are some obstacles in the way, it's a little bit less... Like, I, I don't want to take a shortcut <laughs> as much. Um, so I did that. That was that was uh, a really good thing. Uh, Empire's SMP is also taking shape. I have done my first build on there. Um, I did a bit of redstone beforehand because I wanted to turn a triple cave spider spawner into what is effectively a skulk block printer. Um, the, the spiders all fall and take full damage and die on a couple of skulk catalysts, which are hooked up to a stone generator, which basically churns out skulk blocks for me now um it's a fun xp farm if a little grindy uh it's probably going to be really for mass producing skulk blocks later since the blocks themselves only give you one xp per block and that's you know you're effectively breaking you're using one durability per one xp it's not a great trade-off um but it also gets me skulk sensors and shriekers if i want to do anything with those and in the meantime it was a fun little project that i'll probably do a bit more with um, what I've really gotten stuck into so far this week is starting to build a ruined capital city that is going to be my sort of major build con contribution to the, the, the series. And there's a kind of uh, broken down, almost kind of Roman or Greek inspired look to it so far. There's a lot of columns, there's uh, a lot of polished basalt and tuff and glow lichen to make the place feel like it's eroded over time, but is still kind of is still standing in a lot of places and then a bit of overgrowth with some mangrove leaves and roots but not too much because i didn't want the entire thing to feel like it was you know covered over by grass and and nature at this point but i'm really happy with how that's coming together i'm planning on keeping that build style going for the majority of the builds in that area and i'm planning on hiding a few secrets here and there in them as well so looking forward to seeing how that goes i like the look of those i i'm behind by one video i i saw your landscaping video but yeah this ruined kind of it almost looks like acropolis inspired kind mm, of like yeah level of 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 architecture and broken arches and i i like also the the move to go with like two by two columns like really meaty supportive heavy heavy things that looked like they it kind of it always kind of evokes the idea of like what did this thing use to support that's no longer here mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah really, absolutely really heavy stuff and it's very, difficult very cool. it's difficult building with even numbers sometimes but there are some oh, builds very. where it really works and i feel like three by three columns would have made this build like it you're scaling things up by double the size more or less yeah. but i just wanted this to be like getting the build style established and i'll do some some bigger building later on um but yeah in the meantime i'm i'm really happy with how a lot of this came together and there's a few kind of hidden features of it that i still need to to tinker with it's something that can expand out into the rest of the area as well there's a couple of nearby hillsides that i can just be like oh i'll pop a bridge over to so it's like a walking path that goes from here to the other side of this 
little thing and then you can have a path that goes underneath that and i want to start making this area feel a lot more like a lived-in city and not flatten out too much of the area around it so you know it, it feels like it's conforming to the landscape a little bit more while standing out from it at the same time this was also my first attempt using lightmatica to import a schematic into the survival world from a creative world where i'd mocked this up in the first place and I found that kind of, like, it, it's it's fine. It works very well for what it does. And it's not the type of Lightmatica where you can just hold down right-click and the blocks get placed where they should be. You do actually have to go around and put the blocks in the right places. There's some very neat features to it, like the fact that you can pick block from the schematic. So you're not picking the block that's actually physically in front of you. Uh, you're oh, picking neat. it from the, the illusory version that's projected into the world. Um and there's, yeah, a couple of other bits and pieces that work really well with it. My problem is that the semi-transparent way of rendering the blocks so that you can actually see through them to the real landscape almost is too transparent in a way, in that like it doesn't quite accurately show you what's in front of you. You kind of have to guess, especially when I'm working with so many similar textures. And oh, yeah when it's completely opaque and so i can see all of the blocks and i know what exactly is going there half the time i end up falling into holes in the landscape <laughs> because i haven't like properly terraformed the area around it in order to prevent there from being like little pitfalls and and gullies and stuff that are naturally part of it to begin with so a little bit of a little bit of learning process for me and lightmatica i'm not certain if i'm going to use it continuously throughout the series but i also like the idea of having it almost like a um, a kind of holographic visualizer. You imagine me kind of like pressing a couple of things on like a Fallout Pip-Boy sort of thing and it it generates a, a blueprint for me in, in, in 3D space. I like the idea of that being part of my character's equipment somehow and I can sort of explain away the reason why I've got this uh, mod helping me build where everything is. I like the idea of light Manica and I can see myself maybe using it for if I was trying to copy like a really complicated redstone build, like yeah. a storage system or, or something like that. Um, I've used mini HUD, which has some similar capabilities, but more in like geometric shapes. Like yeah. you want your box to be this big or, or for me, what I find really nice about uh, the mini HUD is uh, creating circles. Like if you have to do a perimeter, like if you have to do a perimeter for a spawn proofing a farm or whatever, it's a lot easier than counting out the circles. And I and I feel like once players have done that a few times, you're just like, I'm I'm done. I, I don't need to do this again, potentially make an error. And because of the way that you count out circles in Minecraft when you're doing that kind of thing, one mistake means everything else beyond it is done and mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. And and I find that, you know, um, I think the most recent example that people might be um, familiar with would be Tango Tech on the Hermitcraft server for the Nether Hub he was clearing out an area and he used mini HUD to kind of display the edge of where he needed to dig. So he wasn't wasting time digging in the wrong direction mm -hmm. and he could keep the shape consistent as he went down. And it was really easy to follow. And it was not as complicated as say like Matica. It was just putting like a kind of like the chunk borders when you turn them on in Java, yeah. it was just putting like a, a, a thin like green outline. Cause it was easy to see in the nether. Uh, around the build and and i've used that for a couple different things you know on on the citadel and i found that it's just one of those things where like yeah it's a little bit of a of a, of a display i don't want to say a hack but it's like it's a little bit of a display help but i feel like at this stage in the game in end game minecraft you're i'm already kind of omniscient in the world anyway yeah outside yeah. of like dying sillily i i generally don't have much of a problem and i feel like 
I'm just saving myself, Joel, some time, you know, rather than kind of like RPing in game to always be, you know, so survival gameplay. Um, I'd rather just, you know, uh, I've done the perimeter a couple of times. I don't think I need to do it on my own anymore. I'd much rather stand in the middle and go click, <laughs> yeah. create circle. You know, I, I think it's it's a lot more helpful. With the light Matica, normally those kind of like add-ons don't, do you not have control about how how much alpha is there in, in the overlay? I expect there is. I just haven't found that setting yet. I'm still ah. very new to it. And I think a lot of it is also just configuring my brain a little bit. You know, like I will look at a half transparent block and still think, oh, that probably has collision and I can jump on it because I'm just not used to using this yet. I think it's just a learning process and it's something that I'll I'll get used to over time. And if I bounce off it, then oh well, like I can still work from screenshots and hopefully it'll turn out just as well. But it does save you a lot of counting. And the one thing I found, and I think this is probably why I've seen a lot of people recently campaigning for there being a larger inventory, is that my inventory was full constantly and I didn't have enough room for all of the blocks because I'm going through and doing this build a layer at a time because it's easier to manage that way and the entire thing isn't stood in front of me transparent. So I was going through and I was like, okay, I'm placing two... Uh, you know, stone brick blocks and then a stone brick wall and then a mossy cobblestone block and a mossy cobblestone slab next to that and going through it layer by layer like that instead of just building large areas of material and then texturing them afterwards means that your inventory becomes cluttered a lot more quickly than it does if you're building in a more trial and error survival sense. So yeah, th there's a couple of things about it that I think part of me doesn't want to use this or rely on it too heavily because it creates other inconveniences for you while you're using it. But ultimately, yeah. it's, a, it's a really cool tool for importing some stuff, especially when I was just experimenting with the build style in Creative at first, and then I thought, you know what, this is a build I actually want to build in the world now. Um, it, it, it helps me translate some of that stuff a lot easier. So we'll see. I'll, I'll update you on whether Lightmatica turns out to be something I use more frequently in future. Speaking of new tools, we have some news this week. The Minecraft 1.19.1 pre-release 2 has been put out. Uh, we've made the decision to postpone the release of 1.19.1, and we are now going back to pre-release mode. This is all from Mojang at Minecraft.net. This is in order to address a few or more noticeable issues. We've yet to fully decide on a new release date, but it won't be too far in the future. We've received a lot of feedback regarding the player chat report feature, which is something we addressed specifically in a new re released post called Addressing Player Reporting Tool, as well as our FAQ, which hopefully answers all of your questions. Uh, that is the Minecraft Java Edition Player Reporting FAQ. We will have links to all three of these articles in our show notes this week. Changes in 119.1 pre-release 2, we've added the ability of to see the signing status of chat messages. This is so that you can easily tell when a server is tampered with or removing the signing security of their player messages. Messages that are not signed with the secured chat system or have been tampered with by the server will now be marked. Messages with missing or invalid signatures are marked as not secure. Messages that are detected as modified are marked as modified. The trust status of messages are displayed with both a colored indicator and an icon. The colored indicator is always visible. The icon is only visible when the chat screen is open. Hovering over the icon will provide more information about the trust status. 
for modified messages, the original secure text will also be displayed on the tooltip. Technical changes in OneNut.19.1 pre-release 2. Chat types added to the chat types registry are now only used for player chat and not system messages. The system and game info chat types have been removed. Chat types have been simplified and are now only required to define chat and narration decorations. The chat types no longer support overlays and a system message should instead be used to display overlays. In the server.properties file, enforce secure profile now defaults to true for dedicated servers. On a slightly more somber note, and we fortunately don't often cover obituaries on this podcast, but I saw this having a huge impact on the community, so I figured it was due an acknowledgement on the show. Uh, the popular Minecraft, Minecraft content creator Technoblade has passed away aged 23. Uh, Technoblade was a creator with over 10 million subscribers on YouTube and had revealed back in August of 2021 that he was battling sarcoma, a type of cancer. At the end of June, he passed away in the company of his family. Uh, tributes came in from across the Minecraft community, including from several of Minecraft's developers and the official Minecraft Twitter account. And the key art for the Minecraft launcher on PC was later updated to include a pig wearing a crown as a tribute to Technoblade's Minecraft skin. And the Spawn Chunks podcast would, of course, like to extend our condolences to the friends, family, and community of Technoblade. So I don't have a lot to add about the changes of the um, the chat reporting tool and them moving the the next update back into pre-release mode, given the feedback that the community has had over the last few weeks. Do you have anything to add? Not a great deal, to be honest. Um, the, it's clear that the team is taking a lot of players' concerns quite seriously. Uh, obviously, a lot of players are insisting that the feature needs to be removed entirely. I don't think that's a result we are going to see. Um, but this week, they've clarified that for a start, all Java servers are within the scope of this player reporting feature, not just Realms. And they've stated a pretty clear reason why in their most recent article, kind of trying to clear a few things up. Uh, they've also restated that moderation will be done by a human team, not an automated system. And that seems, to my mind, perfectly possible. Um, and they also seem to be taking the community's concerns about possible exploits very seriously. Um, various exploits have now been demonstrated to this system. Uh, initially, the ability for an admin or even a command block to use the slash say command to enter a chat message as though someone else had said it uh, was brought to light, although that was probably not logged as signed chat by the player report. And it seems like a couple of the changes in the second pre-release here is you know, is, is part of the solution to that is kind of clearly marking whether or not something came from the server messages or came from in-game chat that would be signed with a player's UUID and the sign-in key that they get when they log in. Uh, the more serious concern here is that bad actors within the modding community could potentially falsify reports in a more convincing way, spoofing accounts, UUIDs, and so forth. They claim to have a system that, you know, marks those as having been tampered with, but it's unclear as to how, and they're probably being quiet about how they do that because there is a chance that the modding community would then find that and find ways around it. But considering how open Mojang has been with players being able to decompile and go through Minecraft's code, it's always going to be a difficult battle, this. And I don't know enough about the modding community and about how Minecraft is coded to really say which side of this we're going to come out of on but um either way 
As before, it's always been possible to simulate stuff like this in-game and get a player banned if you went through the existing support channels, if you reported somebody for violations of the Minecraft Community Standards or EULA, that's still something a support team would have looked into before this. I think the concern now is that putting reporting in-game, which is a clear win for player agency and ease of use, is also going to make it easier for people to, say, mass report a player using bots. And I don't know, you know, what the solution to that is right now. Uh, obviously, the Minecraft team is going to be looking into this quite heavily, and we'll see how the situation evolves. I think at this point, it's, um, yeah, it's good that they have at least rolled back to, we're not doing release candidates right now, we're doing pre-releases. We still want this to go out. We still want the majority of the stuff that we had in mind to be in there. We just need to make sure that it's not being abused, and that's the most important thing right now. I mean, and that's the whole point of, of pre-releases, right? Like it's the whole point of, of sharing this before it's pushed out and active is to make sure that these I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, that things are safe in the way that, you know, Mojang wants them to be safe. So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm all for them taking their time. I think it's, it's a good move to say like, oh, okay, maybe there's a few things we didn't necessarily cover to the best uh, of of the player's interests or you know the community's interests when we were first introducing this tool but i agree with you that the tool's coming and i think that the sooner that the minecraft community can make a decision on how they're going to move forward with it rather than beating their heads up against it will serve everyone uh, mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of experience with moderation uh, or this kind of concern because like I play on a whitelisted server. I, I don't do any public stuff like I just I, I've even with other games, I've, I've never really been much of an online public player in terms of that kind of stuff. Um, so I've not really ever had to deal with any kind of like toxic communities or stuff where this tool would have been like, oh, I wish we had this, you know. Um, one thing that does remind me of, though, is a. Um, conversation that I was privy to around uh, a situation with Blizzard and the World of Warcraft several years ago when I was part of one of the largest guilds, if not the largest guild in the world. Wasn't a super active member, but I was still listening to what was going on. And at some point, I don't remember all the details, but Blizzard had to squish the size of, of guilds. Like having a guild that was the largest in the world on one single server was affecting the gameplay of people on that server that were not in the guild, right? You've got this huge force of people that are going through areas and playing different parts of the game and collecting different resources. And then people are just like, why am I playing on this server? It's where I've spent all my time with all of my friends, but there's this other guild that just mops the whole you know, world and leaves nothing for us. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also things like guild management. You know, when you do get something that large, even if you are a wonderful community, there's obviously going to be some people that don't get along. And that becomes a challenge. Like you think about, you know, we were speaking about how much we enjoy the help <laughs> and appreciate the help of our moderators for our Discord. Can you imagine having like a, a, a server <laughs> with 40,000 people strong mm -hmm. trying to manage that, right? So um, that was another concern as well. But what ended up happening was they squished the size of the guilds. Uh, big guilds were broken up into smaller ones. You kind of had to have sub guilds. Outside of the game, you're all considered the same big happy family. But as far as technically in the game, you had to kind of split things up. And yeah, there was some feedback. Uh, it's, it's hard to take things away from players when they've had it for years, uh, as I think is what the case is with Minecraft. And, and I think that um, at the end, though, responsible, 
level-headed people within the, the World of Warcraft community and the guilds kind of rose up and helped facilitate the transition from a big old guild to a bunch of little ones kind of all clumped together. And you ended up playing with a smaller community and having a better time. And it ended up working out. It wasn't the end of the world that a lot of loud, we'll say the minority at the time, were making it out to be. So I feel like for people that are concerned about the chat reporting thing uh, with with Minecraft, just like patience and and you know trust in the developer knowing that they have everyone's best intentions in mind i think um between mojang employing the tool to the best of their ability and players finding a way to make it work for them in a positive light i think it will we'll all end up in a in a good spot considering that it's meant to protect people and yeah. and i think that you just kind of have to like it's it's just like anything else these days like if you're judging a series on episode 1 and 2 and, and calling for its demise, then you're not giving it the full breadth, right? You have to watch the whole thing through, you know? Uh, and I think that that's kind of where we are now. We're, we're on, we're in episode one, we're in act one of, of the chat reporting tool, right? We need to see what, you know, the conclusion is going to be before we can really make, make a judgment. Yeah. I, I saw somebody on Twitter this week saying like, you know, once all of this blows over and once, you know, we've had a significant enough dialogue and everyone's like, even if people aren't super happy, like they're just kind of going to let this version release and, and get on with it. Everyone's just going to realize that this is basically a pretty standard and generally okay moderation tool and that's kind of all it has to be right i think people are putting a lot more on this than needs to be said but i think the people who are taking it seriously are from what i've seen taking it seriously for the right reasons and that's always going to be a good thing we're ultimately encouraged to give our feedback on this stuff that's what mojang has been saying from the beginning so i'm glad that people are giving their feedback in a constructive and responsible way at this point um, let's move on to lighter topics and uh, cover the chunk mail. We've got a bunch of it lined up here. And if you'd like to email the show and potentially have your emails read on a future episode, the email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. And the first email comes in from Jason M with the subject tied into our discussion just now of chat reporting from a parent's perspective. Hello, Jay and Jay. I'm writing to share a parent's perspective on the new chat moderation feature. As a parent of multiple children ranging from 11 to 15 who all play Minecraft and are active on social media, I can truly say I am perfectly fine with this change. Many social media apps have similar features and I believe an alternate way for anyone, especially children, to report negative activity is a good thing. Not everyone has a parent, guardian or trusted person to help them process or deal with online activity like bullying. It's too easy for those not affected to say, just turn off chat or ignore it. This provides a non-emotional review to hopefully better what I have experienced to be an overall great gaming community. I'd also like to offer, if I may, some parental advice that has worked for our family. 1. Be active in your kids' online life. Allow them to share those experiences without judgement or freaking out. This allows them to verbally express and process what happens. I think we as parents tend to treat our children as such and forget they're growing into young adults, age appropriate of course. Number two, help your kids grow their self-confidence. I find my confident kiddos are less susceptible to online or in-person attacks or bullying, while the less confident ones are more upset and require more attention in this area. The less our kids care what strangers say online, the happier they are, and they can just enjoy themselves regardless of online influences. We love the podcast, and it's great to have content the family can experience together. 
Jason was advised by his kids not to die in the sign-off because he's not cool enough. (laughs) (laughs) Roasted. (laughs) Roasted by the kids. I mean, look out. Um, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's a a good sign-off in and of itself. Um, I really appreciate hearing this from a parent, especially since the most vocal feedback we've heard from players has been one of self-interest. And not saying that's necessarily bad. It's not people being selfish in the negative sense. It's a valid perspective. But we also need to remember who these changes are being made for. The majority of us are not doing stuff that, or, or associating with people who you would consider reporting. But for kids, the internet's a scary place. There's a lot of people out there who they can't trust. And like people who will try and earn that, that trust for negative reasons, ultimately. So I think it's, it's worth remembering that, um, yeah, these changes are being made for the protection of younger individuals. And it's worth acknowledging on top of that, that many of the people speaking out against the reporting feature may still be parents. You know, there's a Venn diagram, it's a big community, and there's going to be some overlap out there. But I think having this kind of perspective is really important to the discussion. So thanks, Jason, for uh, sharing that. Uh, Yeah, nothing to add, uh, other than I really appreciate pointing out that uh, not all young people that are playing Minecraft necessarily have a parent or a role model. And so having these tools available is is even more essential for, for those individuals. Next email comes in from Hot Dog Plant, winning my favorite username this week. <laughs> the subject is Rust. Hello, Johnny and Joel. I have listened to your show since about episode 150, and I enjoyed a lot. You're both funny, insightful, and nuanced in your discussions each week. You bring new details about Minecraft to my attention and make me appreciate and think about it more. In fact, the other day, I was pondering the oxidation mechanic and whether any other blocks could use it or similar aging process that would give us new building options without the need for Mojang to dream up new ways to generate new blocks and for the players to obtain them. I didn't take long before I realized there's another material already found in Minecraft that also oxidizes iron. What if Minecraft iron could rust? I've only felt that the iron block texture was a little bit ill-suited for building with. Between quartz, calcite, diorite, and white wool and concrete, there are better options for white blocks. Having a few rusty variants could be something that brings new life to the building material of the iron block. The introduction of rust could have other implications as well. Imagine if iron golems needed regular maintenance to keep them from grinding to a halt like the copper golems would have. Maybe villagers could gain a quote-unquote beekeeper profession to keep their golems nice and shiny. What do you think? What else could rust be used for in this wonderful game? Hot dog plant was slain by an iron golem because he misclicked while trying to scrape the rust off of it. <laughs> I mean, that's one way people are going to lose their hardcore worlds, right? And uh, yeah. at, <laughs> imagine at last it's happened. Somebody has written into the show asking us to one v one them on Rust. Um, I, I, I always felt that like iron has always felt a little bright, and and I've seen a few people retexture iron to something closer to anvils and cauldrons in the past. So that's kind of part of this is. Iron as a block doesn't really seem like you would expect a meter block of iron to look in real life, right? You'd expect it to look a bit more like scrap metal at this point. So, yeah, rust is potentially a direction that could take, um, especially with netherite being so expensive. <laughs> it doesn't exactly fit into the build palette for survival players, right? Yeah, I, I'm i with you there. And, and I feel that 
because it, you know we were talking about this in in the I was saying the pre-show, but everybody's listening to the render distance uh-huh. this week. But yeah, I cook a lot with cast iron. But what gives cast iron that dark black appearance is the seasoning. If you actually strip a cast iron pan down and shine it, it's actually got this a very shiny, silvery appearance. Not quite as bright white as a, a iron block in Minecraft. And with the horizontal lines in the texture, I find it very hard to use anywhere outside of like if you're making some like futuristic technical place. Um, so I, I've always liked the idea of having a more traditional iron looking block. And you could also have, we've got polished iron, right? Like you could have polished iron and have that be the shiny one that we see now. Right. Uh, and I think that, you know, adding in those blocks would be, would be great. I'm on board, but of course that means you're going to need several variants, right? You're going to need semi-rusted iron, rusty iron, fully rusted iron, plus slabs and stairs. And don't forget, we need riveted 70 semi-rusted iron, <laughs> riveted rusty iron, riveted fully rusty iron stair. Like it just, you can see where it opens up like a whole can of like, uh-oh. <laughs> Yes, right. and, and and much like the waxed, lightly weathered cut copper before it gives us more contenders for the longest item name in Minecraft. If we have yeah, r- riveted, right. semi-rusted iron stairs or slabs or whatever, yeah, that's... Whatever, and, yeah. And, and I mean, waxed on top of that, yeah, of course. Right, of course, right, because to keep the rust state of the riveted, semi-rusted iron, you have to wax it, which, uh, yeah, I, I, I understand that I'm being a little bit cheeky here, but... Uh, it did bring to mind something else, which is from another game, actually, Satisfactory, another building game that I play. And they recently added beams. And they're like the iron eye beams that you can make and connect. And in Satisfactory, you can put them in any direction that you want. 360 mm-hmm. degrees, there's a way to put it down. But in Minecraft, it made me think of how cool it would be if like, instead of just adding like an iron wall, which while yes, that would be cool. What if an iron wall type block in Minecraft would be a horizontal wall, something mm-hmm. that you could put uh, in the same way that you can make end rods, you know, kind of line up in that way. Um, I think that could open up all kinds of things like decoration stuff. You could have some more industrial looking um, supported structures. And for any kind of redstone farms or or mob, you know, moving, that creates a different shape hitbox. You know, like it, you might be able to control the flow of different things, items, mobs, because of what could fit between two walls horizontally, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely potential for for something like that. Um, I'm still not entirely convinced that aging and corrosion is going to be the right mechanic for iron because it's one of the unique selling points of copper, right? I think the the discussion came up when they were implementing copper of like, what else could this apply to? What else is, you know, going to make sense to show its age? And I feel like if it does apply to something like iron, it needs a different mechanic to me. Like, I think it needs to be crafted or right-clicked with something to rust it instead of it oxidizing over time. So almost like an inversion of the way we interact with copper, where it decays over time and we have to preserve it in that way. Um, I, I big fan of the horizontal walls idea. Uh, A-plus idea there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do think there's there's some stuff that could still happen to it. And to be honest, we're still looking for other uses for things like copper. And we've talked about iron being one of those things that where additional uses got added to it over time. I'm almost thinking it would be cool to have something else like this, but take it in a different direction entirely. Have another type of metal. Maybe it's tin or aluminum or something like that, which which ends up being you know, a, a new material. And obviously iron is the one that we're talking about rusting, but I think other materials with other properties, there is potential for that with copper as the precedent for it. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested in building with a slightly more rusty feeling color palette, 
I've seen a lot of really great builds which rely on it being a larger scale thing. So you're looking at stuff from a distance and the blocks kind of texture and blend together. Um, but red sand and red sandstone go really well with anything that you're trying to make look more industrial and have that kind of rusty palette. Regrettably, as we said earlier, still a very scarce block because uh, it's just the top level of, of Mesa terrain. But I do think, um, yeah, red sand looks like it's you know, the right sort of texture for, for iron that has rusted to the point where all of the, the outer coating of it has just flaked off and it's just the raw innards of the thing. I think that's a uh, a good call for anybody who wants to build with that kind of palette. And depending on your comfort level with a data pack, uh, I know we have a data pack on the Citadel that allows us to dye sand red just because, you know, when we do want to build with a lot of it or use a lot of it, then it's easier to get, you know, just mine regular sand and then, then dye it red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, always a uh, a handy thing. Um, let's move on to Blue Cactus One Twelve, who wrote in on the subject of balancing diamonds. Hey, Pix and Joel, I was just mining for diamonds and realized that I literally had no use for them anymore. I watch a lot of Hermitcraft where diamonds are used for currency, but the only thing you actually need diamonds for is a jukebox because you can get everything else from trading. What do you think would be a good way to give mining for diamonds an actual purpose? One idea I had is making some sort of decoration block or light source block, like diamond bricks or diamond lanterns. Diamonds could also be used in more endgame crafting in new items, though I don't know what those items would be. Blue Cactus 112 drowned in their useless pile of diamonds. <laughs> we have a Scrooge McDuck situation on our hands. <laughs> That's one way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, someone finally said it. <laughs> Because I have been thinking about this forever. And especially when watching Let's Play series like Hermitcraft, when players get excited about finding diamonds, I'm left sitting there going like, why? Like, I have I stopped mining diamonds literally years ago on the Citadel, and I still have stacks. You know, and I just, I don't, I with mending on the tools, I don't go through them. Like, I, they don't break. I don't necessarily use them. I think maybe, you know once or twice over the course of my you know playthrough on the citadel i've died in lava and lost some stuff but now my pickaxes have got netherite on so that's not necessarily a concern right um i was just saying the other day on stream that i would love to be able to control the light level of a lantern and i would pay a diamond to do it uh and that would be you know a consumable way to potentially get rid of your diamonds or have them uh, be something that has to go away in order to get that special lantern. I don't know how that mechanic works. Maybe you're not like right clicking on a lantern with a diamond, but maybe you're trading with a villager to get a specific light level lantern, right? Like maybe there's uh, a villager that you can give a certain amount of diamonds to instead of emeralds uh, or maybe emeralds and a diamond. And then you get, you know, a light level three lantern or a light level six lantern or something mm -hmm. like that. Because I don't always want to use a blue lantern to get a dim light, right? I kind of want to have a regular lantern, but I don't want it to always kick out light level 15 um, for what I'm doing right now. So that's an easy way. Um, I think an easy fix for some players would be to have like stairs and slabs added to diamond blocks. I don't particularly like the texture myself, but if you do, that'll eat up your diamonds pretty quick. Like you want to make a diamond roof, kiss your stack of diamonds goodbye. Mm -hmm. You know, like that'll, that'll go pretty quickly. Um, I prefer the end game crafting idea. Uh, things like speeding up hoppers maybe because it's a diamond hopper or crafted with a diamond in it you know uh new profession blocks that are powered by diamonds just the other week i don't remember whether it was last week or the week before we mentioned a grinder as a way to potentially have renewable sand in the game well industrial grinders in real life have like diamond encrusted wheels that crush things down because of how hard diamonds are 
And that could, again, be a way to use diamonds and have them be something that you can go through a little bit more in the game. Maybe instead of powering something like a furnace with coal, you have to power this grinder with diamonds. It would certainly make the renewable sand idea a real grind. Um, diamond pressure plates, you know, like what function could they provide? I don't know. I just kind of was kind of thinking about the different kind of unique things that don't really serve necessarily a decorative function in Minecraft, but more of a redstone or kind of like gameplay function pressure plates you know gold pressure plates being different what what could a diamond pressure plate offer players you know yeah absolutely there's plenty of potential for it as there is with a lot of different materials so uh i i will i'll push back on one thing blue cactus points out in this is that diamonds aren't just for jukeboxes they're also for enchanting tables beacon bases and additional effects for fireworks stars if you combine a fireworks star with a diamond it adds like a trail effect to the particles as they explode um so diamonds equal lag if you're <laughs> if you've got a lot of them going <laughs> off at the same time nice. um and yeah if you combine glowstone dust and a diamond with all of the ingredients of a fireworks star it also creates like an additional kind of twinkling effect so there are a few hidden uses for diamonds out there and yeah as you and some folks in our discord live chat have been saying building with them is perfectly viable to do like it seems silly and especially if you if you're on a server with players who want to hoard that kind of stuff you are potentially putting your wealth out there at risk for other people to take it away but if you're operating on a server or in a single player world where nobody's going to come along and eat your diamond blocks then i do think it's worth building with like i ended up building some stuff on last season of empires where a diamond was an accent block in a wall and it looked really cool as a contrast next to a bunch of bee nests and like you can do neat stuff with them that way uh pearlescent moon uh, on this season of hermitcraft the crimson crafter has pointed this out is building alien looking mushrooms and diamond blocks just happen to have the right kind of color that she wants to complement a palette of like warped wood and a few of the other cyan kind of blocks in the game so there are still some options um i think part of the reason diamonds don't have more uses right now is because of server economies relying on them as an easy currency so you don't want to overburden your players with stuff that they can craft from diamonds if they make sense as a valuable item for people to trade and they still inherently hold value because of the fact that diamond tools are like the second from top tier of tools um, I honestly considered swearing myself off of the mending enchantment for this season of empires and repairing diamond picks or freshly re-enchanting them each time they wore down um, because we're not using diamonds as our trading currency we are trading resource for resource between each other um, but I decided against it when I realized that upgrading to netherite tools made it significantly more difficult because you can't repair those with diamonds you have to use netherite ingots um, so I was going to need mending at that stage anyway and the whole point was moot but yeah, I do think there could be more uses for diamonds, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that there aren't. I think people just need to reframe their perspective on diamonds once they amass enough that they don't need them anymore. I think when I was back on Decidedly Vanilla and I, I kind of reached the point of saturation with diamonds, I started hoarding diamond ore and then made a giant obelisk out of it inspired by the ones from Ark Survival Evolved, that's those kind of giant monuments in the sky. And... I like the idea of doing stuff like that with diamonds. You can creatively push the boat out and do some things that don't require Mojang to necessarily provide new functionality for you. Yeah, I guess one of the cool things about diamonds is that both the diamond ore now with the deep slate variant and the diamonds themselves are, I think, the 
only or one of the only resources, certainly the only ore resource that is not renewable by any other farm. Mm-hmm. Like nothing drops diamonds, right? Raids drop emeralds, witch farms drop redstone, uh, zombified piglin drop gold. Like, so like you can get all the minerals and the ore is a different way. Yeah. Um, but, but diamonds, it's the only way that you can get it. Cause I remember one of the data packs I had an idea from when all the crafting data packs were coming out, I thought, Oh, here's a cool thing. Maybe what I'll do is I'll add a, a way to, uh, deconstruct the iron or the diamond tools that I get when I go end rating. But I didn't end up making the data pack cause I didn't need it. It's like, I don't need three extra diamonds. I've got two stacks. Right. And, yeah. and Mojang has provided a, a sort of roundabout way of doing that with the introduction of the, um, the grindstone so that if you go and get those enchanted diamond tools from the end that you don't necessarily want those enchantments on, you can remove the enchantments and then you're left with a, a pickaxe that you didn't have to craft with your own diamonds. Like mm-hmm. you just have a diamond pickaxe that you can then enchant, turn to netherite, do whatever you want. Um, and I guess that in itself also means that the diamonds you mine out of the ground are even less useful for tools depending on what level you are in the game like if the ender dragon is done that and you can go to the end to get these tools and there's just another way to get diamond picks and shovels and things yeah um yeah like it's it's hard and i i i understand like the whole economy thing on on hermitcraft or other servers that use diamonds as, as an as an economy tool I, it's we. I also find it funny though when everybody gets so excited. It's like, but you have a lot of diamonds, but so does everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's not like any one person seems to be. I guess it all just depends on who wants to put in the time, you know. And uh, it's interesting when you see players like skirt the system or just like decide mm, I do. I don't need to participate, or I can participate in the economy by giving stuff away for free and re- like really kind of <laughs> messing up the value of stuff. Um, it's this came up actually. Uh, I was talking with Cosmic because she's on the Citadel with me and we were talking about like, do I want to build a shulker box farm or a shulker farm? And I was like, I kind of do, but the designs out there for shulker farms end up giving you something crazy like 200 shulker boxes an hour. I'm just like, I, I don't need, no, we don't need that many. Like I, and I, I don't know if I'm ready on the Citadel to make one more unique, valuable item completely not obsolete, but lose its value because once I've got 200 shulker boxes, I don't need any more, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's, you know, like if diamonds became, you know, something that was more, you know, that was easier to get, then it would really become like a second string thing. So like, I'm, it's a, it's a tough call to decide like, and I think also there's a huge just history of Minecraft and how exciting it is, you know, back in the early days to find diamonds. Cause it was the top tier stuff and they were yeah. super rare and hard to find. So I get that nostalgia is in there too. And that all comes before me. Right. So like I, you know, me coming to the game in one twelve, um, or just before that, I mean, sure. It was exciting at first, but very quickly as the game moved forward and I got mending enchantments. It it diamonds had lost their luster, if you pardon the pun. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think especially for casual players, like or, or first time players, it's such a huge leap going from iron tools that have you know two hundred and something durability to diamond tools which have five times that. And if you don't have a concept of the shortcuts to you know trading with villagers and everything to get hold of stuff then the majority of the time that's going to form an, an enormous attachment because suddenly these are the first tools that you can really get attached to. And so, yeah, I think diamonds just always end up holding that special place for players and it's it's a, a community thing at this point. 
I feel like adjusting that is going to be kind of strange. But then again, it is, like we said, 4th of July. If you want to fire all of your diamonds into the sky in the form of fireworks, then I don't think today is the day anyone's going to be stopping you. <laughs> 4th of July and four frames a second. <laughs> <laughs> Our next email comes in from Instry, Story and Armor. Hey, Johnny and Joel. After listening to episode 199 of The Spawn Chunks, I was thinking about how I subconsciously think about how my armor portrays my character's story. For instance, on my current SMP with some of my friends, we are building different empires and I prefer using a gold helmet, not only because of the technical benefits, piglins, saving on diamonds, etc., but because I like the aesthetic of it and it gives me a sort of king or noble vibe. In response to your hot bar conversation, I noticed that all, I always either carry a shield or nothing at all in my offhand, even though there are countless times where not worrying about switching to a specific hotbar slot to save myself would have been super useful. I also never carry a totem in my offhand. Thanks for the amazing podcast and keep up the great work. Istri tried to swim in lava and failed because he had a shield instead of a totem of undying. <laughs> and the shields won't save you from that. They will save you from basically everything else, though. Um... So yeah, empires. You're speaking my language there. Um, on on our empires SMP, uh, we we take it a step further, and we have some artists from the community who we commissioned to design custom tools and armor for us at significant points in the story. Usually, when we've got to the point where we've got netherite armor, and you know, I, I didn't do much of this in season one, but a lot of the other players really went in for like block bench models of different stuff and you can make some enormously detailed things which really tie into your character's story in that sense um that was the stuff that we we were doing that with optifine back in the day but i think it's it's also available through mods like the custom entity models mod and things like that and in multiplayer armor is such a key part of a player's experience and this is something that you're you, you have to explain quite frequently on your streams because you don't wear diamond armor right like you've you've retextured your tools but you're still wearing iron yeah well yeah my pants are iron my boots are netherite because i jump off of stuff so much i want the extra durability yeah mm -hmm. uh and i wear a gold helmet so i never have to worry about it when i go to the nether and i wear a lytra so i don't wear a chest plate at all uh, but yeah, my iron leggings, it, it basically, I was wearing diamond leggings, but then I ended up doing a bunch of risky stuff and nether, you know, when we were first establishing the nether hub and I was doing all these big nether farms, I would die a lot and I would end up losing stuff or losing, you know, uh, armor. And I just never felt like pants gave you much of a boost other than just like, you know, a little bit more protection. So I just stopped making diamond pants and just started doing iron pants because we had an iron farm. So it's like, well, that works. Plus it also makes the game a little bit harder for me because with netherite boots and a gold helmet and, a, and an elytra, the only thing I'm wearing that has any kind of protection on it is actually the pants. And as iron pants, they don't have the same sort of armor protection that, that netherite or diamond do. So it makes the game a little bit harder for me without making it harder for my server mates. So, so that's good. And it may, may also be something that I forget about. Like if I go into a dark cave now in 118 and I start to get my butt handed to me, I was like, why am I dying so fast? Oh, you know, <laughs> elytra, iron leggings, <laughs> like mm -hmm. no helmet, like no wonder I'm, I'm having a hard time. Um, so that, that kind of stuff is, is kind of a good way to, I don't want to say RP, but like you can kind of have that level of control armor, I think is a great way to customize your experience in Minecraft that only affects you unless your server mates, if you're playing publicly have the texture pack that you have, 
they're just going to see you in blue diamond armor or gray netherite armor. So if you want to change the design of your armor, change the color of it. I remember when netherite first came out, people didn't like that it was so bland and they started putting like little fingers of gold through it to kind of indicate the gold mm -hmm. that was used to make it. And I thought that's a nice little touch. You know, it makes it a little bit easier on the eyes. Um, I think that one of the reasons I started off not wearing diamond armor because I thought it was terrible looking until I was able to get into and learn how to do custom models and textures for Minecraft. I was just like, I just don't like being a big blue smurf in Minecraft. Um, I often found that iron, sorry, uh, that armor uh, covers up the skin that you have that people work so hard on and then you can't see it. And one of the things that I love about empires uh, that you are, you guys are doing this season uh, and gals uh, is that, if you choose the armor can be invisible yeah which yeah, means yeah. you can still play with all the benefits of the protection all the benefits of being ignored by piglin but then you're not covering up this super cool skin like i think the example i used last week or the week before was that gemini tay has got this really pretty princess outfit that she's really excited about but she doesn't want to cover it up and i appreciate that you know like it's it's a nice piece of art you know as to go along with your story and and i think that those are all things that you can control within the game that Again, don't affect gameplay. Like the, as long as you're not changing the stats on the armor and, or how it functions, then you're just, you know, you just get to do some cool stuff. Like I, for me, uh, I had diamond armor. I still have the texture pack, even though I don't use it. And every once in a while when I'm in my crafting table, someone's like, what is that flowery looking thing? It's like, oh, that's what my diamond chest plate looks like. It looks like a samurai type type deal you know it's oh, got nice. like a yeah. round thing in the middle and it's got like feathered shoulder pads and st stuff like that not feathered but like it has like a uh design to it uh and my diamond texture my actual diamond um item texture is from i don't remember the name of it it's like it's one of those old medieval packs and i don't like anything else about the pack but the diamond just really nailed it it's it's octagonal and it has like it's more of a whitey blue an icy blue and i use that color palette to then inform my texture changes to my um my tools because like you said i do get that question a lot when people come into my chat about my diamond tools again i didn't like the look of the blue uh and because uh, until netherite came out i was using diamond tools exclusively so most of the time there was this big blue thing on the screen with me and i just i really started to grade on me so i turned it into more of like a it looks more like a silver i guess in terms of colors uh, and so I've got a silver pickaxe and a silver axe and a silver shovel in terms of visuals. And those are my diamond tools. And I find it much more aesthetically pleasing, but again, it doesn't affect anybody else. And if somebody on the server does not have my textures, then I just show up with a blue shovel and it's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, some uh, a fun fact about the Empire's Invisible Armor resource pack, which is a resource pack rather than being a mod. Um, yeah, it's, oh, cool. it's, it's, it's great to allow everybody to you know see each other's skins uh before we have like storyline armor which is probably the point at which we'll start reverting back to the the standard resource packs um it also remo removes the armor from mobs and it, it doesn't like physically remove it but it doesn't render it um and then you wonder why a zombie or a skeleton is taking more hits to kill is <laughs> because they're wearing a full <laughs> suit of gold armor that you can't see um that happened to me when i was caving the other day i went through a mine shaft i killed a couple of zombies and I didn't see any of them dropping armor. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, didn't think anything of it. But then it turned out I had three or four pieces of armor that I picked up from them just in my inventory. And I went, wait a second, <laughs> when did I run into armored mobs? And then I realized, oh, yeah, invisible armor. It's, it's, uh, 
it's a funny one um but yeah i do think there's there's room for armor to tell a story and a story we were talking about it last week doesn't just have to be told through builds your player is going on a journey and like whatever armor set you decide upon whether it's like you want to have a turtle helmet because you do a lot of diving or whatever like it's all all part of the journey that you take through minecraft um we're coming to the end of this journey for this podcast we're going to wrap things up there although of course you will be able to listen to our post-show chat as well for this episode but that's going to be it for the main episode of the spawn chunks you can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff that we've talked about today at thespawnchunks.com the music for the show is composed by me, and The Spawn Chunks is, as always, proud to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, please consider putting some value back in. You can visit patreon.com slash thespawnchunks to join our community, where pledging at any level will get you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat. You can listen to the show live as it is recorded, and you'll get things like the render distance that you heard this week. You'll get that every week if that is your jam. You can also participate in our monthly Minecraft audio hangout, and even gets us closer to our future goals once we start to establish more of those for supporting the show. We're currently at 340 patrons, which is down from last week, but Patreon probably still has some holiday weekend processing to do. Uh, special thanks, as we said at the top of the show, go out to our content engineers, Hunter555, Jumbo Sale, and Yitz, and the Discord mods as well. Thank you so much for all you do and supporting this episode. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spawn Chunks on Twitter and Instagram, but personal recommendations are by far the best way to share the podcast. It's easy and it's free. Just tell a friend that they can listen to The Spawn Chunks on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, even YouTube. Really, wherever you can find a podcast, you can find The Spawn Chunks. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite platform. You can email us at The Spawn Chunks uh, email address, which is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The RSS feed is linked on the spawnchunks.com and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the render distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixelriffs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixelriffs, where I try to make sense of this bizarre and wonderful game in Season 2 of both the Minecraft Survival Guide and Empire's SMP. I also stream three days a week on Twitch, where I do behind-the-scenes work for my YouTube series. I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. And aside from that, I'm at Pixelriffs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything I am doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio, is at joelduggan.com. The Citadel Cafe is my other podcast, all about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment. I had a great conversation with Alistair this week about Obi-Wan Kenobi. All six episodes are out and done, so we had a full spoiler chat about that. You can follow me at Joel Duggan on social media and Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I stream three times a week from the Citadel. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, but 200 still feels like a lot. Losing my voice right on cue. <laughs> no worries. We can keep the uh, post-show nice and brief here. I figured we'd probably yeah. probably wrap it up and make it a nice succinct episode since we are putting the whole thing out to uh, everybody who normally listens to the main show as well. And I am on the slide checking the Wimbledon scores right now because there's a couple of fun <laughs> matches happening. We're in the, uh, the round of 16, so the people who are headed to the quarter and semifinals are being decided. So very exciting time. I do not remember the name, but you were talking about a young phenom uh, player that was making uh, waves. Uh, have they progressed? Are they, they still in it?
Um, Emma Raducanu is the British hopeful in the women's draw, and she went out, I think, in the second round. Like, she had a pretty good oh, wow. debut, but then, um, yeah, went out kind of early. But then again, Serena Williams went out early as well. Um, in the women's singles, I'm looking at it potentially being Harmony Tan, who I think beat Serena Williams, and um, who was the other player? Ons Jabur, who was a Tunisian player um, and has been playing spectacularly well all tournament. And I really, I, I like the the women's tennis game a lot because it's a lot less like power driven. There's a lot more tactics involved instead of just like a wailing on the ball from the baseline constantly. Um, but there's a couple of other men's matches that have all, all, all already been like uh, spectacular displays of technique and variety of game and stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of keeping an eye on some of them as well. I'm always just amazed by the athleticism behind tennis players, yeah. especially at that level. Like just to be able to move that quickly and still maintain that power, like the, the level of movement and ability and then skill, much like golf, you know, like just you're using a racket with a, a very small ball to create all kinds of different techniques and and execute different strokes and stuff. And I just, I, the whole thing, I mean, because I've never really played seriously, it's all just, you know, weird science to me that I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, but but as someone that, that trains a lot on the regular um, and appreciates, you know, the athleticism and stuff. Like I used to work out with the football team when I was, I wasn't on it, but I used to work out with some of the guys in, in university and just like appreciating the athleticism and power and stuff. When you reach a certain level of sport, you know, whether it's varsity professional tennis, like whatever that is, there's a certain level that, that people display where you're just kind of like, how are you human? Yeah. <laughs> like, how does this, how does this happen with you knowing that you and I are the, are the same essentially you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at a, at a, at a molecular level, you know, like it's just, it's just amazing what some people can do. And it's really interesting seeing the drama that comes up around big tournaments like Wimbledon when you have a player who's like at the top of their game, like a Roger Federer kind of, you know, in their prime and on their way mm -hmm. to win, you know, their sixth or seventh championship title and then somebody comes out of nowhere and takes them out like you know th there was a i forget when it was it must have been back in like i want to say 2015 2016 or something we were watching wimbledon and federer was doing spectacularly well he got to like the third or fourth round and there was a guy who just played the kind of serve and volley technique all game where like after he served, he'd immediately run to the net and start like attacking, attacking, attacking. It just took Federer apart. And this is a man who's, you know, won Wimbledon, I think, eight times in total. It's bizarre, but it's it's so fun to see those like unexpected upsets. And like, yeah, when it, whenever anybody puts Serena Williams out of a tournament now, I'm like, OK, eyes on that player for a little while unless they just, you know, go out in the next round and it was a fluke. But either way everybody who's playing at this tournament is going to be like you know some of the best tennis players in the world anyway so it's always going to be really exciting to watch nice yeah I, I remember that when i was watching basketball and you'd watch you know jordan score 63 points against the 70s not the 76ers i think it was the trailblazers or something mm -hmm. but like that was in the playoffs and you're just like what like what what in the world is going on and then like the next season they lose to like the dallas mavericks or something and you're just yeah. like how does that happen how does the three-time <laughs> world champion you know uh nba uh or the three-time nba champion team the bulls go into you know some like low ranking team and just get steamrolled you know yeah, and yeah. I, th I mean it, it, 
as much as there is skill and, and all that kind of stuff, there's also that strategy. You know, it's like football. It's 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 I'm assuming tennis is probably the same. Like if you've got a, a powerful player that you're up against, like if you try to finesse them, like you might be able to kind of like weasel into their weakness. And mm-hmm. like maybe they're, you know, if you play their game, you're going to get schooled. But if you try to make them play yours, you might have a better chance. Yeah, that sort of half happened with uh, Djokovic yesterday. And Djokovic is, again, probably the one of the, if not the best tennis player in the world, uh, especially right now, um, and is, is on form, is stomping opponents in the tournament. He won the first set against, um, what was the player's name? He was a Dutch player. Um, and and he, like, the, 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 the other guy came back and took the second set, and you, you kind of think, you know, is this going to be one of those all-time greats, like, massive upsets, somebody comes out of nowhere and and deals with Djokovic. Djokovic raises his level, absolutely flattens the guy in the next two sets. It's like 6-1-6-1 or something. And you go, yeah, okay, that that was (laughs) probably what we should have expected from the beginning, but fair play to him. They were discussing the kind of mental aspect of that. And John McEnroe, who does commentary all over the place, but often appears on the BBC, was saying like, once you've had, as a player who doesn't normally play you know, five set matches at the height of, you know, on centre court at Wimbledon and kind of really high pressure situations. The euphoria of beating Novak Djokovic one-on-one in a tennis match for one set is enough that once you come down from that, it saps you of your energy. And it's something that you have to learn to manage when you're playing at that level of like, you know, you, you get excited about something, but then it's like coming down from a sugar high. The adrenaline starts to fade off and you realize you have to maintain that level in order to win. And that's the kind of thing that can be mentally and physically fatiguing to a player. Or the reverse, too, of like, you know, you've just beaten this person center court and they're not used to it. And you've now lit the fire under their butt. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> to, to suddenly, put you back. Your, they're, yeah. they're taking the match seriously. Yeah, and that's that's the yeah. kind of thing where I, I feel like Djokovic does that where he he doesn't really let up a lot of the time. Like he's there to play his best tennis 100% of the time. It's part of the reason he has the record he does is like mm-hmm. he always takes his opponent seriously. But this definitely felt like, okay, I, I do need to make sure I'm playing 100% at my best. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so if you're not interested in tennis, uh, thank you for at least sticking around for the render <laughs> distance. Um, the, one one connection, if I may draw one real quick, is that this is our 200th episode, so a centenary of sorts, and uh, Center Court basically celebrated its hundredth year of professional tennis being played there. Um, wow. Uh, it was uh, opened in 1922, and so yeah, Center Court at Wimbledon has been hosting tennis matches for a hundred years now, um, which is really quite cool they had a big ceremony for it the other day and brought out as many of the previous Wimbledon champions as they could manage to get hold of at this stage and anybody who had bought tickets for center court yesterday would have been you know they're not seeing everybody play but they've got Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Andy Murray you know like so many like and and a ton of players from the the women's game you know like there's a ton of players just out there and as far as photo opportunities go, you know, that's uh, probably one of the best chances you're going to get of seeing all of those people in, in one place. 
Well, speaking of uh, milestones, I mean, 200 episodes flew by for me because of how much fun we have <laughs> sure on did. the show. Yeah. And uh, we're coming up on four years this August of, of doing the show on the calendar, which, again, just blows my mind that, you know, we get to do this as, as part of our job. So, again, a huge shout out and thank you to everyone that listens, patron or otherwise. Uh, patrons, of course, thank you so much for supporting the show. But everyone that, that listens as well, like that, that helps us like that that engagement and the emails like writing in and giving us so much to work with every week is just phenomenal i can't thank you all enough absolutely uh, our next big minecraft milestone is four stacks at 256 so we'll uh, we'll see you all then uh thanks so much for listening to the render distance folks have a fantastic week and in the meantime stay chunky